rustling you can hear in the background is us trying to free ourselves from the giant vampire squid that's trying to get its tentacles around us. We're struggling, maybe in vain, to free ourselves. Hello everyone, this is BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. My name is Alex Hochuli in Sao Paulo, Brazil, and this podcast is also Philip Cunliffe in Canterbury, England, and George Hoare in London, England. Hello. Hey. Hey. How's what it going, What was that guys? about the vampire squid? Yeah, you don't know, you know, the giant vampire squid of, of global finance. Uh, uh, okay. I was actually Goldman Sachs, so it's a bank, I think, rather than global finance per se. Sure. And obviously, you know, I mean, Wait, octopus, do you want to say it also? I meant octopus, I didn't mean squid, I meant mm, octopus. Yeah, tentacles, global, it's beginning without to sound any a bit anti-Semitic. anti-Semitic. Without any anti-Semitic. <laughs> no, without any anti-Semitic overtones or undertones. I never really know of the course. difference. Look, Alex was clearly referencing hentai. So he's 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 on a whole different wavelength. <laughs> anyway, um, regardless of how you wish to visually caricature the role and power of global finance, it's clearly there, very present, and limits what states can do in terms of setting policies, and in many cases, burdened by a hell of a lot of debt. Uh, why don't countries just kind of not pay back the debt? Well, that's a question which I've been wondering for a long time, and. A book by uh, scholar Jerome Rose called Why Not Default uh, went a long way to answering that question. And I think it's a brilliant book. And I was very happy to be able to speak to Jerome, which is an interview you're about to hear now. The second half of the interview, as usual, is for patrons only. If you'd like to hear that, we would love to have you. It's at patreon.com slash bungacast in that the conversation spends more time looking at some of the case studies, particularly Argentina and Greece, Greece being particularly recent in the memory and the way that uh, its government, its left-wing government, folded in the face of pressure from the Troika and its creditors. And then we look at some wider questions as to why countries don't default, why they can't take back control. And we discuss the contemporary questions of sovereign debt, looking at some recent cases of Zambia, Sri Lanka, and Ghana, and also what this might mean for richer countries if they wish to reform the global order. So that's all in the second part, and that'll be followed by our after party, where um, I already know we're going to have lots to debate and maybe make some comparisons also between a country like Britain trying to take back control and a country like Argentina trying to take back control and what options are available to them, the relative autonomy that those countries might have uh, to set their own agenda. Anyway, very much looking forward to bringing you this episode. Uh, I, th- I personally thought it's fascinating material, uh, and we'll love to have you over at patreon.com slash bungacast for uh, the second part of the interview and the after party. And remember, uh, please do rate and review Bungacast wherever you get your podcast. Catch you on the other side. All right, I'm here with Jerome Rose, political economist at the London School of Economics and author of Why Not Default, which is what we're going to be concentrating on here. How are you, Jerome? And where are you calling us from? I'm very well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me on the show. I'm uh, calling you from Amsterdam, and that's where I'm based at the moment. Very good. A home of the hard-fisted creditors. 
That's it. Letting the debtors off the hook. (laughs) That's it. The infamous Dutch. Yeah, exactly. Um, So, I mean, I was um, reading through the the Financial Times. I kind of had saved an editorial from um, about a month ago in which the paper remarked that countries were behaving like teenagers with their first credit card, regularly raising their credit limit with little regard for the mounting debt pile. But that unlike adolescents, nations do not have the bank of mom and dad to bail them out. They're instead disciplined by financial markets. So I thought that was a great place to to start from. Um, and I wanted to make, just make reference to uh, to this Argentinian board game. So we're going to be talking a little bit about Argentina. Uh, this Argentinian board game called Deuda Eterna, or Eternal Debt, um, which is itself a play on external debt. Anyway, it's, it's this board game. It's been around since, um, well, since the early 2000s, since the debt crisis there. And this board game is rated for 12 years and up. So, you know, perfect for, for those adolescents the, the Financial Times is talking about. But it seems to me like um, a board game is the only place anyone's actually trying to defeat the creditors cartel and trying to defeat the IMF um, because not many people are doing it in, in real life. Um, anyway, have you heard about this game? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it myself. Um, I think it's a brilliant wordplay. And um, it's, uh, it's indicative of the fact how politicized debt has become in countries like Argentina, countries like Greece, um, where this has really been an important issue over the past 10, 20 years. Right. And how, I guess, depoliticized it's been um, in many of the kind of more creditor countries or um, countries where a lot of those banks are located. So just before we get into the sovereign debt question um, in more depth, um, you set up Roar magazine uh, back in the beginning of the 2010s. I guess, responding to the euro crisis and beyond. So I wondered what was your um, motivation for setting that up? Were you motivated by kind of the history of the Jubilee debt campaigns or more concerned with Europe and the question at home um, or of debt abroad of, from in developing countries? Yeah, so Roar was really born out of the sort of the moment after the global financial crisis of 2008. Um, I started it as a blog in 2010. And in the beginning, I was just writing on it myself. And the real motivation was actually to try to highlight some of the issues that I felt were good reasons to take to the streets, namely the way in which the crisis was being managed, the austerity that was being imposed, the sort of obvious inequalities that that was inducing, um, the effects that it was having on public welfare and all these things. Um, But at that time, it seemed like there was nothing really happening yet. So it was kind of in anticipation of some kind of popular explosion, if you will, uh, that I sensed was coming Mm. um, and that did sort of start breaking out in early 2011, initially uh, not in the place where I was expecting it, uh, more in the Arab world, North Africa, Middle East, with the Tunisian and Egyptian revolutions. Uh, But soon that inspired very similar mass mobilizations, although for different reasons, uh, partially different reasons, in Spain and Greece. And it's from there that I really started working actively on the publication, sort of embedded within the media collectives of those occupations of the squares that were happening in Madrid and in Athens at the time. And so that's really where the story of Roar began, uh, very much in overlap with the, the anti-austerity movements that were emerging in the Southern European context. Uh, but it snowballed from there and became a much broader project about social movements, about popular mobilizations, about radical politics in the post-financial crisis context. Um, and so soon we started covering much, much wider themes. Uh, but it was really that sort of post-crisis moment that that drew me into sort of street-based mobilizations and the and the writing of this of this activist magazine 
Right. No, that's great. Um, and I want to draw attention to one slogan of sorts that you use right at the end of the book, which is taking back control, which is, of course, the slogan of the Leave campaign and the Brexit referendum. But I think it's a great slogan because it could apply to a whole series of mobilizations and protests that came uh, in the wake of the 2008 crisis. They were all a question and some degree of taking back control of not submitting to the dictatorship of global finance. And um, well, I think your book is an amazing place to start thinking through these questions. So maybe to start, I wanted to ask about the title of your book, Why Not Default? It seems an obvious question to maybe uh, and maybe an obvious answer. Why aren't highly indebted countries not just refusing to pay back creditors? Why do they all commit to austerity, which stretches infinitely beyond the horizon, instead of just, well, defaulting? Um, and uh, as you detail in the book, unilateral defaults have become ever more rare. So maybe firstly, could you tell us what unilateral default means, as opposed to the various other things that we see more frequently, like multilateral renegotiation and restructuring? Various other terms, um, often beginning with R, which sound kind of euphemistic and aren't very clear. Um, and then, uh, if you would, could you maybe give us a sense of the historical trajectory of sovereign default and how it used to be pretty commonplace and why it's really rare now? Absolutely. So what we have with this term default is is a problem essentially that we need to we need to first pick it apart um, because it's a it's a broad bag. It, it could mean a lot of different things. And in fact, when it's being used um, by economists it could refer to a lot of different varieties of default. And so when I speak of uh, why not default uh, in the title, what I'm referring to is why don't countries simply suspend their payments unilaterally in a time of crisis? Why don't they simply stop paying? Um, this is something different from what you know a, a creditor uh, might call default when they're referring to a change in the terms of repayment. For instance, when a country does eventually repay in full, but it does so in a different schedule. That could already be considered a default in, in technical terms, but that's not the type of default that I'm referring to. So I'm referring to what is sometimes called a unilateral suspension of payments. Um, there's another term for that, which is simply a moratorium, uh, which would mean um, you temporarily stop paying until the economy has recovered. And then you might either resume payments or find some kind of deal with your creditors that allows you to restructure the debt and repay a certain share of it rather than all of it. Um, or another type of unilateral default would be uh, an outright repudiation of the debt, which is where you simply refuse to acknowledge the legitimacy of the debt and you say that you will never repay it at all. And the most sort of famous example of that would be the case of the Bolshevik uh, default following the uh, Russian Revolution, where the Bolsheviks repudiated part of the Russian debt, not all of the Russian debt, but part of the debt because they felt that it was an illegitimate debt that was taken on by the Tsar and uh, the Russian people were not liable for paying that debt. And so that type of uh, repudiation is a much more radical and much more dramatic act that we really see very, very rarely in practice. Um, what's interesting, however, is if we go into the history of international debt crises and we look at the way in which they've historically been addressed and resolved, uh, we see that these type of unilateral moratoriums, of which I spoke, used to be much more common than they are nowadays. So looking at the last great international debt crisis before our current era, uh, we have to go back to the Great Depression of the 1930s, uh, which was a period of widespread default throughout Latin America, large parts of Southern Europe. And the type of defaults that were pursued then were very often these type of dramatic 
unilateral suspension of payments, um, whereby the, the debtor government simply says, look, we don't have the foreign exchange reserves to repay these foreign debts. We can't pay them without squeezing our people, without robbing ourselves of the resources that we need to import vital goods. Uh, so what we're going to do is we're going to stop paying that debt, at least until a point where we have recovered adequately to be able to resume payments in a way that doesn't completely squeeze our domestic economy. Um, so what happened in the 1930s is that a lot of countries, the majority of Latin American debtors included, simply suspended payments unilaterally and maintained those moratoriums often for years or decades on end. Um, that was fairly common up until the 1930s, also before that, even in the era of gunboat diplomacy in the late 19th, early 20th century, it was quite common for countries to respond to debt crises uh, with these unilateral suspensions of payments. Um, the contrast between, our, between that era and our current era is very stark because what we've seen ever since the resumption of international lending in the 1970s and 1980s is the precise opposite of that. It's the virtual evisceration of unilateral default as a legitimate policy response and a very stark decline in the incidence of unilateral default um, across the board. Uh, so there have been moments in which countries have defaulted on their debts, but the vast majority of these defaults are of a different sort than what we used to see. They are no longer these dramatic unilateral suspensions of payments, but rather they are negotiated restructurings, renegotiations of the debt, uh, whereby the debtor doesn't go their own way, uh, but simply sits down at the table with their creditors and tries to negotiate some kind of deal that allows them to have a different repayment schedule or repay only part of the debt. Uh, but crucially, uh, very few debtors are willing uh, to risk going it alone and doing the type of things that they used to do in the 1930s, which was simply to stop paying. Yeah. I mean, two things spring to mind. One is the idea of unilateral action, which I think is a pretty much a kind of one of the biggest taboos in international affairs today. Um, unilateral action is always, you know, even the even saying it out loud sounds like something you'd hear on the news of them saying, well, you know, certain state has taken unilateral action. And, you know, it's meant to sound kind of it's meant to sound bad. It's meant to sound like the thing you're not meant to do. Um, so that firstly springs to mind. And the second is the way that this is the question of debt has been depoliticized, particularly sovereign debt, which, you know, you're explicit, you know, at the beginning of the book that your aim is to repoliticize this question. And indeed, the fact that um, a creditor might loan money, you know, that was always understood as a risk that you might not get paid back. And that's why there's why there's interest being paid and, and so on. And then that interest varies according to how risky it is. Um, and it seems that this has been something which has been completely de-risked or the, the assumption is broadly that effectively every time they, that there is debt, that the debt will be repaid. And this is a kind of fiction. It seems that the, the world economy sort of runs on now. No, that's exactly right. I mean, there's this presumption nowadays, we start from this presumption, uh, that the debt will be repaid in full, and that if the debt is not repaid in full, um, the debtor is somehow to blame for that, and that the debtor is at fault uh, for failing to live up to their responsibility to repay the debt. And um, I'm here, I'm always reminded when we get into this part of the conversation of uh, the book by the late David Graeber, uh, my friend, the anthropologist at the London School of Economics, and uh, one of the early activists in the Occupy movement, um, when he, he, he points out this morality uh, to the debt question, right? And this presumption, which is also very common in the country where I'm from, in the Netherlands, um, that if you take on a debt, you must repay it. Um, you know, Graeber pointed out in his book that in German and also in Dutch, 
the the word for debt is schuld or schuld, uh, which is the same word that we use for guilt. Uh, so thereby, the presumption is that the debtor is already by default um, guilty for their predicament. And so a failure to repay a debt makes one even more guilty in practice. And so going back to the Netherlands while I was doing my field work in Greece uh, at the time of the Greek debt crisis uh, was sometimes very confronting because I would very often be confronted even by close family members, uh, friends who I thought were, you know, broadly on the left. Um, I would often be confronted with this presumption, this presumption that, hey, hold on, didn't we loan them the money? Don't they have uh, an obligation to repay it? Uh, why, why are we even considering the possibility that they might not repay it? Mm. Um, and so I think that is, um, is, is an inherently moral question, uh, but it's one that's been completely depoliticized in the discourse on debt and on debt crises. And so one of the first things that I do try to do in the book is to, to point that out, not necessarily through David Graeber's work, but rather through a different lens, um, um, looking at sort of neoclassical presumptions about what a country should do in a time of crisis. And what I try to point out is that, in fact, even if you depart from these neoclassical assumptions of mainstream economics, it's a puzzle. It's a puzzle to observe that many countries repay their debts in full even in times of crisis, mm -hmm. because neoclassical economics actually assumes that if you are a self-interested um, actor and a nation state with your own freedom to make choices about the type of policies that you want to pursue, then you have a rational self-interest to try to accumulate as much debt as possible and then to not repay those debts. Um, because every debt repayment is in effect a wealth transfer from the debtor country to the creditor country. Um, and so, the debtor country has an inherent interest to try not to repay. So then the question emerges, if that is the inherent interest of the debtor, then why does that interest not win out more frequently in the struggles right. between debtors and creditors? And I think that is uh, where this question becomes overtly political uh, because there is a redistributive element there. Uh, ultimately, in times of crisis, you have to decide who pays for the crisis, you know, right. who is going to, who is going to share in the burden of adjusting for this um, for this predicament? And so, what you find is that with the reduction of unilateral default as a legitimate policy response, um, the cost of these debt crises has has been shifted more and more towards the debtor countries, and the creditors become more and more expectant that they will be repaid in full, even in times of crisis like during the Corona um, pandemic, for instance. Right. Excellent. All right. So, I mean, you've set up the question as being one of not why do countries default, but why don't they default? Um, and, you know, as you say, it's been pretty infrequent that countries have defaulted over the past five decades or so. So one of the things that you try to do in the book is explain the mechanisms through which debtor compliance is maintained, guaranteed, achieved. Um, can you talk us through those? How are creditors able to make debtors continue to pay? And conversely, maybe, why do debtors decide that they need to pay? Right. So this is the central question, ultimately, at the heart of not just my book, but of the whole literature on sovereign debt. Um, it's kind of a puzzle. Uh, many economists don't have a, have, a, have a convincing explanation for it. Um, and that, I argue, is because they lack an analysis of power, uh, which is ultimately at the heart of this question uh, of debt repayment. So the question is really. Um, why are creditors powerful enough to make their debtors repay? 
And what are the mechanisms through which they bring that power to bear in crisis situations? And the mechanisms at which I look are basically three in number. Um, the first one operates through essentially the financial market itself. And this is, you know, something that in the depoliticized economics literature is sometimes called market discipline. And I actually take that term and I use it, but I try to repoliticize it. And I try to ask, you know, what's actually happening inside markets that allows them to discipline debtor governments um, and that allows them to basically provide creditors with a form of power over their debtors um, that will make their debtors do things even if they're not directly put under pressure. Um, in other words, what allows you as a creditor to force a country to repay without sending gunboats? And the market is the first mechanisms through which that operates. And if you're a debtor country, the problem that you encounter is that you fundamentally depend on credit for your basic government functions. And that is true for a variety of reasons. It is true because a number of government expenditures are simply too big to fund out of tax revenues. Um, think of large infrastructure investments, think of any type of spending that basically forces you to spend more than you have in reserve. Um, that type of money, you cannot, you don't have it lying around. You need to find a way to borrow that and then repay it with your tax revenue. Right. No, uh, so no one's, one. no one's tech, even the richest countries aren't necessarily like living within their means in the sense of um, only spending what they earn, what they bring in through no. tax income. It's always smoothed out by credit to a certain degree. Exactly. So unless you're Saudi Arabia or Norway and you've got a huge sovereign wealth fund accumulated through oil revenues, you don't have that cash lying around to make these big investments. So you need access to credit markets to be able to obtain the type of long-term uh, uh, credit to allow you to make these type of investments. A second reason that you need access to credit is for more short-term expenditure, uh, which is simply a consequence of the fact that tax revenue is not continuous. It comes in maybe once a year, uh, yet your expenditures as a government are continuous. So you constantly need to smooth out the differences between your income and your expenditure. And that forces you to rely on a variety of short-term um, uh, credits in order to allow you to do that. Now, more than that, uh, it's not just that the government is dependent on long-term and short-term credit, but the firms of the data country are also dependent on a variety of um, uh, forms of credit. And these include not just credit for investment in uh, industrial production, for instance, but they also include, uh, for instance, export and import credits, which underpin the entire international trade system. So if you're a country like Greece and you don't produce uh, crucial medicine or you don't produce oil, yourself and you import these things from abroad, uh, your importers are going to need access to credit to be able to buy those things. Um, otherwise, you simply cannot import these things. Um, so what that means is that you depend on credit and you cannot do without it. And in that type of situation, um, you're automatically at a disadvantage because if you depend on credit and someone in the world is capable of withholding that credit from you, that gives them an indirect form of power over you. Uh, so that's the first mechanism at which I look. And it's really the mechanism that allows foreign creditors to threaten a withholding of further credit to a debtor country and thereby to inflict these really damaging economic costs on a country, uh, not just directly on the government, but also on the wider economy. Um, because by you know withholding these trade credits, by withholding credit to the banking system, you can really unleash a series of catastrophic uh, financial knock-on effects that have huge consequences for a domestic economy. 
So that is what then I would call the repoliticized version of market discipline. It is a power dynamic whereby creditors are capable of withholding credit from a debtor country and thereby to inflict these really painful economic costs. And the question that arises is, in what conditions are creditors more or less capable of making that credit threatable? And the situations in which I argue the credit the threat is the most credible is when the debt uh, dependence is highly concentrated. In other words, when the dependence of the debtor country is on a very small number of foreign creditors. Um, so that means that, for instance, a number of major financial institutions uh, can threaten to withhold credit and thereby, you know, almost single-handedly uh, unleash these dramatic economic consequences. Now, that was in the Greek case, for, in, for example, very, um, very prominent because most of the big creditors to the Greek government were just a handful of major European banks. And we see that, you know, recurring throughout um, a lot of international debt crises since the 1980s, um, even though, you know, there's this movement towards bond finance, which tends to be more decentralized and more dispersed. In practice, a lot of the debt is held by a very small number of financial institutions. And they and can coordinate between themselves, right? That, exactly. That's basically where they get their power from. Exactly. They can coordinate between themselves because they're few in number and they can collectively say, hey, hold on. If you're going to do something that we don't like, we're going to withhold further credit and we know that's going to hurt you. So you're going to do what we want you to do. Um, so that's that first mechanism. It's really crucial. But there is a second mechanism that's a kind of corollary to that, uh, because what happens is that if this debt is highly concentrated among a few financial institutions in the creditor countries, it also means that a default by a country like Greece or any other country that um, is uh, you know, a major debtor uh, could hurt these financial institutions quite seriously. And that means that a default in one of these countries could become a major banking crisis or financial crisis in the creditor countries. And so to prevent that, the creditor countries will try everything in their power to prevent the debtor country from defaulting on their debts. And so what you get is you get creditor state intervention. And we can go back as an example to the 1980s um, when Mexico was threatening a default on its foreign debts. And the U.S. government realized that a lot of its most important banks held a lot of that Mexican debt. And that meant if Mexico had defaulted, there would have been a major banking crisis in the United States. And basically, people inside the financial establishment um, in the United States realized that if they don't do something about this, um, there will be a major banking crisis. So they need to step in and ensure that Mexico repays its debt. And so what they did is they mobilized not just their own institutional power as a creditor state, but also that of international financial institutions, especially the International Monetary Fund, in order to disburse these emergency loans to the Mexican government. And uh, that then becomes a second mechanism by which you can prevent this default from happening. Because you disperse these emergency loans, but in reality what happens is that these bailouts of the debtor countries in effect become bailouts of the creditors because the debtor country simply takes that money and funnels it straight back into debt payments. So it's an indirect bailout of the financial system mm. inside, the, inside the creditor countries. But crucially, those emergency loans don't come for free. They come with conditions attached. And those conditions often are structured around ensuring full and timely repayment. So what you get, for instance, are the type of conditions that will maximize resources, the availability of resources within the debtor country's economy 
that allows them to repay in full. So what you get is you, you as a debtor government, you're forced to cut pensions, you're forced to cut the salaries of your public employees, um, you're forced to uh, raise taxes on your own population, uh, cut spending on everything from hospitals to the education system, generally pursue all these dramatic austerity measures uh, and privatize your, your public um, enterprises in order to free up resources for foreign debt servicing. So that then becomes a second mechanism, this type of conditional emergency lending um, through which the creditor countries and the international financial institutions join the private creditors in ensuring that the debt is repaid in full. Uh, so that will be the second mechanism, but that even that is not enough in practice because it turns out that yeah, I, I mean, if a country is determined still to kind of see all that off and go, no, we're still defaulting, um, then it can probably do so. It can get away with it. It could hypothetically do that, and so what you want, uh, ideally, if you're a creditor, is you want to have some allies inside the government in the debtor country uh, that you can rely on to work together with you to ensure that these conditionality programs are implemented and that the debts are repaid in full. And so this is what I would call the third mechanism, which is a mechanism whereby um, essentially the people inside the debtor countries who share the interests and ideological convictions of the creditors um, are systematically strengthened over the course of the crisis because they tend to have good relations with the international financial establishment. They have good relations with creditors. And so they can get the kind of deals with their creditors that others might not be able to get. And Again, we could use a sort of a practical example here. Uh, if you look at the Greek case, for instance, uh, what you see is that there was a constant effort on the part of the creditor powers to play off different factions inside the Greek government against each other and to side with those that were friendliest towards creditors and to punish those that were pursuing a more heterodox policy line. And what that means is that because over time, you know, the people who are pro-creditor, to put it simply, um, get a better deal from their creditors, people inside the government begin to realize that, hey, there's a, an incentive structure here. There's an incentive structure to be more creditor friendly in our own approach because that gives us slightly better market terms. That mm. gives us slightly lower interests on our emergency loans. It gives us better access to creditors in one-on-one -on -one negotiations. Um, so let's not rock the boat and let's make sure that we do what the creditors demand of us. And um, that is kind of what I call the internalization of debtor discipline inside the state apparatus of the of the debtor country. And that is a crucial third mechanism through which, um, you know, a particular group of people are strengthened and another group of people who might oppose austerity, who might oppose full repayment are systematically sidelined over the course of the crisis. Right. Um, and we're going to come to, I guess, the kind of relative role of these and some of the examples and the case studies that you detail in the book. Um, and I, I assume that most listeners are pretty familiar with the Greek case, um, maybe a little bit familiar with the Argentina case, and maybe by this stage, not actually that familiar um, with the case of the Latin American debt crises of the 1980s, which is to a certain extent faded from view. But um, we can maybe come on to why it's an, a kind of massively important historical moment and to a certain extent maybe sets the... Um, sets the tone for what came after. But anyway, so 
you know, until the mid 2000s, I think the, the IMF was one of the left's number one baddies. And even the role of the IMF, to a certain extent, I think has faded from view. I mean, if we think about the Greek case, um, the IMF was one of the nicer creditors, I think, you know, it was generally like the Eurogroup and, and the European Central Bank who were seen as a real hard ass creditors who insisted on repayment, whereas um, the IMF recently has um, come to be seen as um, a more sensible organizer of, 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 uh, of creditors' interests, um, pursuing a certain economic rationality, at least, where it kind of recognizes that austerity maybe has gone too far. But it's worth rolling back to the 1980s and what its role was. Um, as you uh, wrote about the IMF, what even gunboat diplomacy and outright military invasion could never fully accomplish in the 19th century, the IMF now seemingly managed to do systematically and on a global scale without any of the associated saber rattling. So the IMF was more powerful in a way, more effective um, than even sending gunboats to uh, claim back the debt. So how did it play out in the 1980s debt crisis? What was the IMF's kind of role and what was maybe novel about it, uh, about what it did there in a way that um, hadn't happened in preceding crises? So the 1980s are really a key turning point in the story of international debt. And part of that has to do with the fact that the debt crisis of the 1980s was the first major debt crisis since the 1930s. Uh, and part of it also has to do with the fact that the response to that crisis was so different to anything that we'd ever seen before. And um, as I mentioned before, the crisis of the 1980s was distinguished by this sort of being the first time that um, debtor countries were forced to repay in full and that a unilateral debt moratorium was ruled out as a legitimate policy response. Uh, but the crisis was also distinguished by the fact that the IMF now existed and it didn't exist in the 1930s. And so it was the first time that you had a major international debt crisis with a major international financial institution like that capable of becoming involved um, as, a, uh, as a manager of that crisis, essentially. And what happened is that the role of the IMF was fundamentally restructured over the course of that crisis um, to be, for the IMF to become the institution that it is today. Um, so we have to remember, if we go back a little bit further, that the IMF was not founded to be an international financial policeman. Uh, it was founded uh, essentially um, as part of the Bretton Woods international financial architecture in order to um, look after uh, the international flows of money and to prevent um, balance of payments crises between countries from occurring. What happened in the course of the 1980s is that the U.S. government began to realize that its um, financial institutions were heavily exposed to the Mexican government, to other Latin American governments, and that a default in any of these countries would have severe ramifications for the U.S. banking system. And so starting with the U.S. Treasury Department and the U.S. Federal Reserve, there was an attempt to try to make the White House aware of the fact that those defaults had to be prevented at all costs. And that was not necessarily the initial response of the Reagan administration. I mean, we have to remember that Reagan came into power, at least rhetorically, as a free marketeer. And there was at least rhetorically, initially in the crisis, a commitment to that type of free market logic. So there was a sense that, you know, if lenders made irresponsible loans to the Mexican government and the Mexican government can't repay those loans, then that's the fault of the lenders. And mm. we shouldn't you know, come in and bail them out by preventing Mexico from defaulting on its debts. That was actually the initial response of the, of the White House uh, when the debt problem first arose. But it was when the US Federal um, Reserve made the government aware 
that there was a risk of a major U.S. banking crisis that the Reagan administration turned around and that the administration actually started pushing quite aggressively to prevent a Mexican default and later a default in any of these other countries from taking place. And what they realized is that there was an institution uh, capable of helping them uh, in that goal. And that institution was the International Monetary Fund, um, because what it allowed them to do was to make these, to disperse these emergency loans to the uh, Mexican government, and then to make these loans conditional upon what I you know, mentioned before, these hardcore austerity measures uh, that would force the country to essentially dedicate as many of its resources as possible to debt servicing. Um, so this is really the moment that the IMF is transformed um, from the traditional Bretton Woods institution that it was into the neoliberal disciplinarian that it became. Um, and you see that around this time as well, there is a change over inside the IMF. Uh, many of the Keynesian economists are replaced with more free market oriented neoliberal economists. And there's a general reorientation in terms of how uh, the IMF thinks of its own mission in uh, the sort of you know, post Bretton Woods context. Um, so this is really a fundamental shift, and it's a fundamental shift uh, that uh, has echoes right up into the present. Uh, and you mentioned rightly that the IMF has changed over time and that in the Eurozone crisis, it played a rather different role. Um, but in the 1980s, it was certainly one of the most aggressive enforcers of international debt contracts. And for that very reason, also became um, one of the, um, you know, the... Uh, the main enemies of the international left and of the Latin American left in particular. Now, I mean, just to take a little tangent before I ask the question of, I guess, why, you know, you conclude that Mexico didn't default when it seems so obvious that it could have done or should have done, um, is maybe to ask a counterfactual, because um, as you know, the Federal Reserve Bank of New York uh, wrote that bankers and policymakers faced a threat of financial disorder on a global scale, not seen seen since the Great Depression, if Mexico or another major Latin American debtor uh, defaulted on its obligations. So it's interesting to think, and I certainly prompted the thought when I was reading the book, what would have happened if Mexico had indeed resisted and if it had been successful in doing so? Uh, might it have changed the course of history, um, not only by getting Latin American debtors better deals, um, by at least trying to use its leverage that it had in, in the way that it represented such a systemic threat to Wall Street, um, but also that it might have even stopped the neoliberal counter-revolution in its tracks at that moment if it if it had been successful in um, defaulting. And in, I mean, for all the chaos that it would have caused, we might be in a better situation today if it had done. Um, so I, do, you, do you think that, um, would you agree with, I guess, my intuition that it was such a kind of pivotal moment? I completely agree that it was a pivotal moment. Uh, unfortunately, we can never know what the outcome would have been and what the counterfactual would have looked like. Um, but I suppose that the only thing that we can do is we can compare it to the closest example that we have in which something like that did happen. And that is the crisis of the 1930s. Um, and so that, I think, is a very interesting contrast that a lot of economists were already making during the 1980s debt crisis. So they were observing that there was this huge difference between the crisis of the 30s and the crisis of the 80s, uh, in the sense that the crisis of the 30s was managed overwhelmingly by these unilateral moratoriums that I mentioned earlier. These countries simply stopped paying. Uh, and actually, you know, there were efforts by the Mexican government for many of these Latin American borrowers to bond together and create their own sort of debtor cartel against, um, against the, the foreign creditors. 
And interestingly, the U.S. government under uh, President Franklin D. Roosevelt um, allowed much of that to happen and was quite supportive of that happening in the 1930s, uh, in part because Roosevelt himself was pursuing a kind of anti-Wall Street agenda that allowed him to reform the U.S. economy in the context of the New Deal. Um, so he actually used some of the momentum of the debtor resistance in the global south um, to uh, pursue his own domestic policy agenda against Wall Street. Um, now, there are some complexities involved, because if we look at who actually held the debt, um, it was a lot more complicated in the 30s than it was in the 80s. So in the 1930s, the debt was much more dispersed. A lot of the Latin American debt was held by um, basically millions of small U.S. investors, like small-scale, middle-class families who put their savings on the stock exchange, uh, maybe some pensioners here and there. Um, And these were the people who actually got screwed when a lot of these countries defaulted because Mm. they lost their investments. Um, The banks played a mainly intermediary role at that point. They didn't hold much of the debt, but they were the ones responsible for selling it to these small investors. Um, The 1980s were a very different story. So the 1980s were a story where the debt was mainly held by the banks themselves. And it didn't take the form of bond finance. It actually took the form of bank loans. So there were direct bank loans made by the likes of Citibank um, to the Mexican government, to the Brazilian government, to the Argentinian government. And what these uh, big banks did is they organized uh, so-called syndicates where they basically brought a number of smaller banks together, pooled their funds, and then collectively loaned the money to these developing uh, countries. And what that meant is that in the context of a default in the 1980s, it would have had much more direct ramifications for the financial system. So if we want to fully entertain this counterfactual and think through the logic of what would have happened, uh, essentially what would have happened is that the major U.S. banks would have collapsed. And not just the major U.S. banks, but also all the smaller banks that were enrolled into their lending syndicates. Uh, So these involved even, you know, mid-level regional banks, they involved European banks, they involved Japanese banks. Um, so really, the type of financial crisis we would have gotten would have been a major banking crash um, on a scale comparable to the Great Crash of, of 1929, probably. Um, and, you know, we can ask very interesting questions about what that would have meant for the future of financialization, for the future of Wall Street. Um, but my suspicion is that it was precisely that fact that made it impossible for the U.S. government to accept a Mexican default and mm. made them absolutely convinced that everything they had to do everything in their power to prevent that from happening. Um, and so that's precisely why the debt crisis became so politicized, why the U.S. government was so aggressive in preventing a Mexican default, and why it ultimately mobilized the IMF and all its other financial firepower uh, to ensure that that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I mean, it, it, that paints a pretty clear picture of the way that uh, the international lender of last resort holds up the whole kind of financial architecture of the world. Um, it keeps the the show on, on, on the road. Um, though it's interesting that, I mean, to turn to the Mexican case specifically, I think you seem to conclude or um, at least kind of, uh, you know, on balance what comes out in the wash is that the balance of domestic class forces was um, prohibitive, I guess, of, of, a, of, of a default. Specifically, that Mexico didn't really have 
the degree of popular pressure from below, um, whether on the streets or in the ballot box, to really force through a default to say that, hang on, we're not going to pay for this crisis. Um, and so whatever, default, re, you know, renegotiate, repudiate, or you know, have a moratorium at the very least um, on these loans. Um, and that, that basically didn't happen because of, yeah, um, there was there wasn't the revolt that one saw in Argentina, um, you know, a decade on, or in or indeed or two decades on, I should say, or in Greece, you know, more recently. Is that is that kind of a fair reading? I think it is a fair reading, um, but it's not for lack of trying on the part of the Mexican left. Let's say um, th- there's a complexity involved in the Mexican case, which is that Mexico Mexico in the 1980s was still run by the Partido Revolucionario Institucional. The, Revolutionary Institutional Revolutionary Party, the PRI, uh, which you know has sometimes been called an elected dictatorship. It was essentially a one-party regime that had within itself a kind of left nationalist wing and a more conservative wing. And um, what happened is that as the crisis broke out, there were intense contestations within the party as to how the government should respond to the crisis. And the president who was in power when the crisis first broke out was by no means a progressive hero. I mean, he was actually responsible for some of the most, uh, 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 some of the most horrible bloodbaths in Mexican history, uh, murdering the um, um, student protesters uh, in Mexico City. Um, he was also a person who tried, at least in the beginning of the crisis, to push back a little bit against the demand for full repayment, and although he you know, kept paying the debt, there was a brief attempt to at least nationalize the Mexican banking system to try to prevent the Mexican banks from exerting too much pressure on the government. Um, So he took the example of François Mitterrand in France, uh, who had just nationalized the French banks, and tried to do the same in Mexico. Uh, But ironically, that attempt backfired. And that was kind of what defeated the more heterodox policy response to the crisis and empowered the more conservative, economically conservative wing of the governing party to pursue its favored response. And then it's the sort of capacity of that single party system, which controlled all of the labor unions, which controlled the peasant organizations to kind of prevent any grassroots opposition from emerging uh, that allowed the government to insulate itself from these popular pressures. And so what you see here is a kind of first effort to create a kind of technocratic government um, made up of experts, uh, people who were educated at the you know, U.S. economics departments of the major U.S. schools, uh, who largely shared the same worldview as their colleagues inside the IMF and the U.S. Treasury Department, um, who had close links to the domestic and the international financial establishment, Um, There was that kind of capacity of that group of people to establish themselves as the most important policymakers when it came to the debt question, and also to insulate themselves from these popular pressures and thereby uh, basically pursue, uh, obtain a free hand to pursue their preferred policy response, which was to repay in full and to restructure the domestic economy along neoliberal lines. Um, And therefore, I think, again, Mexico is a very interesting case because it's one of the first countries where you see this dynamic um, uh, at play, uh, sort of neoliberal restructuring, not just of the economy, but also of the state, uh, and an attempt to create a technocratic management of the economy uh, in close alliance with international creditors and international financial institutions. And in that sense, Mexico prefigured a lot of uh, the things that we are still seeing in the world today.
Mm, yeah, no, that's very good. Um, and I think that um, should be paid any notions also of, um, you know, the international creditor cartel and international financial institutions that it's merely kind of external actors imposing itself on a, on a sovereign debtor. Um, that this plays out kind of domestically in often quite complex ways, um, and probably none more so than the Argentinian case, where you had genuinely did have a popular revolt. I mean, a total legitimation crisis um, in two thousand one, and I mean it's worth kind of going back and uh, and and kind of looking at some of the scenes, including the show notes, a, a link to 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 a documentary film about it, because um, it's worth um, for those who maybe aren't so familiar with that case. Um, to, to reacquaint themselves with it. Um, you know, this was a situation where the, the so-called patria financiera didn't get it all its own way. And that's a term which it's kind of um, good that you introduce that one, which is the kind of financial homeland, which is basically the, the kind of external facing bourgeoisie um, as against other conceptions of the nation, whether it's a more left-wing one or a more kind of corporatist nationalist, maybe more right-wing leaning one, um, where you have the, the emergence of this other homeland, effectively, the, this other section um, and pole within society, which is oriented, oriented outwards and kind of goes very much along the lines of what you were saying in terms of um, state uh, agents, decision makers who were educated in the same schools as uh, the, the financiers and the creditors and so on. Um, and that's to whom they uh, owe their allegiance much more than um, any kind of conception of the nation and its own development. Um, so um, maybe to kind of bring in this, uh, bring this discussion to kind of Argentina more concretely, what was Argentina's situation in the late 90s? Um, and what was the trap that it found itself in one that you know, is actually kind of similar in a way to what Greece found itself in, in the 2010s? Right. So Argentina is a very interesting case, because like Mexico, it contained within itself this fundamental struggle um, between, as you mentioned, one camp, which uh, called itself or was later called the Patria Financiera. And on the other hand, this kind of more national populist or corporatist uh, faction of the Peronist movement, uh, which was more oriented towards the domestic economy and some kind of association with labor, but also an attempt to develop a national developmentalist agenda. Um, for a long time, those two had been battling it out. But we must remember that the 1980s were not just a time of crisis for Mexico, but also for Argentina. And the outcome of the crisis of the 80s for Argentina was very important for what happened in Argentina in the 1990s. Um, so what we saw is that there was a brief attempt during the transition to democracy in the 80s um, to create a sort of more defiant approach on the international debt question. So when um, the dictatorship in Argentina fell and uh, the first democratically elected government came into power, uh, it actually attempted to create an international debtors cartel inside Latin America to push back against the power of creditors. And this was kind of brutally crushed by the international creditors. And it led to a situation in which Argentina, um, in the wake of the crisis of the 1980s, becomes a kind of poster child of neoliberalism. Um, especially under the government of Carlos Menem, um, who is a, a Peronist who actually run on a fairly leftist um, election campaign. Um, yeah, for those not familiar with, with Argentina, it's a little bit, <laughs> you're opening up a kind of worms here and, and, you know, talking about Peronism, where you've got this, you know, hard right neoliberal figure in Menem, but you also have much right. more kind of left developmentalist figures. And you're like, wait, these are all in the same party? Anyway. It's very complex and very confusing. Um, and if you look at how he ran in the elections, at least when it came to the economy, um, there was a progressive message there. Um, 
the thing is he flipped around immediately the moment he got elected and became basically, yeah, the most pro creditor right wing character that you could imagine. Uh, also extremely corrupt. Um, yet because of his neoliberal reforms and his attempts to privatize and liberalize the economy, um, he be also became a, a, a darling of the International Monetary Fund and was invited to speak uh, at its annual gatherings and received a lot of praise from the international financial community. And Argentina essentially was, like I said, it was a poster child of neoliberalism in the late 90s. And yet ironically, it was that country that went into one of the deepest crises as a result of this sort of new shock to the international economy um, in the late 1990s um, that begins in Southeast Asia when a number of the so-called Asian tigers um, go into crisis and then spreads like a wildfire through the emerging markets. It goes through Russia, it goes through Turkey, it goes through Brazil, uh, and it kind of culminates in Argentina where you get this major crisis developing in the late 1990s. Um, very much a consequence of those very neoliberal reforms that Carlos Menem had been pursuing. Um, and uh, that leads to this really intense contestation over the question of the international debt, because it's immediately very clear to Argentines that the efforts of the government to repay the debt are leading to generalized impoverishment at home. And the austerity measures needed in order to obtain new IMF loans and keep repaying foreign creditors um, are really having enormous consequences on poverty levels, um, very direct consequences on people's livelihoods. And so what you get in the late 90s in Argentina is truly a sort of perfect storm um, of crisis dynamics, whereby the debt crisis feeds into a social crisis and that social crisis becomes a very profound political crisis. And uh, all of that sort of explodes uh, in 2001 in a major popular insurrection um, that has the question of the international debt at its very heart. Yeah. The interesting thing is, um, you know, as we go forward in time, um, because there's far too many ins and outs to cover entirely, uh, I would encourage listeners to pick up Jerome's book if if, um, if they want to know more. But to kind of fast forward to, I guess, some of these pivotal moments, um, you write that by October 2001, um, so this is just, I think, two months before the default, uh, that Wall Street was actively pushing for default. So, you know, that's kind of runs contrary to, um, you know, what you might expect um, by that point. And so the question is then why uh, was that the case and why was the IMF not insisting on its uh, pound of flesh by that point? Why had why was why were the conditions with regard to Argentina kind of different? Why was it kind of not maybe allowed to default, but why was it in a condition which was pretty different actually in a way to the Mexican case? Right. So the Argentinian case is super interesting for a variety of reasons, because you've got a number of things coming together there that you don't normally see at the same time. So one is this popular insurrection that I just mentioned, but the other is a very important change in the composition of Argentina's debt. So what had happened in Argentina in the 90s is that a number of large Wall Street banks had intermediated between the Argentine government and a number of institutional investors. And these were large investment banks that had basically um, 
helped the Argentine government obtain funds, uh, but that didn't hold the debt themselves. So the banks that were involved in this sort of intermediation game, they weren't the creditors. They were just dealing with the, the Argentine government, but the debt actually ended up being held overwhelmingly by large pension funds, by mutual funds, and by other institutional investors. Um, initially, largely U.S. investors, uh, very large and wealthy institutions that knew what they were doing. When the times were good in the 90s, they were happy to invest because the returns were good and the risks seemed to be low. But when Argentina went into crisis in the late 90s, and when it was obvious that you know things might go south and the debt might not be repaid in full, a lot of these institutional investors started to sell on their debts on the secondary market. And they wanted to offload that as soon as possible because they saw the you know, dark clouds gathering on the horizon. They knew something bad was going to happen and they wanted to get rid of that as soon as possible. And so they basically set up a situation in which they tried to find people who were, I don't want to say stupid enough, but people who weren't informed enough um, mm -hmm. to know what was really happening. And so they packaged these debts in complex instruments and they sold them on mostly to small investors who had no idea what they were buying. Many of them actually Italian pensioners, also some Japanese pensioners, some pensioners in, in Germany. Uh, essentially, they sold them onto small pension funds that didn't have the large research departments that these US institutional right. investors had, that didn't have a capacity to investigate exactly what type of debts were included in the instruments that they were buying, and that certainly weren't as aware of the internal situation of Argentina's finances as the large institutions were in the US. And so what happens is that over the course of the late 90s and the beginning of 2000, 2001, a lot of the debt is offloaded onto these other creditors. And crucially, these people have no direct link to the international financial establishment. They don't have a say in um, important decision-making. They're basically dispersed small creditors, almost like the kind of guys who held the debt in the 1930s that I talked about before. Yeah, yeah. Right? There too, the debt was held by small pensioners, small investors who don't have the kind of clout that a large institutional investor has. So that's a fundamental shift because at the point that that debt is offloaded, it means that the risk of an Argentine default is now spread to people who don't have any political power. And it means that a banking crisis in the US now seems increasingly unlikely. If Argentina were to default, it wouldn't lead necessarily to the collapse of Wall Street as it would have two or three years before. The IMF is aware of that. The US government is aware of that. And around the same time, a number of other things start happening. I mean, this is, you know, this is the context of, um, you know, the war on terror. This is the context of uh, the US government trying to, you know, get allies, uh, and a coalition of the willing and geopolitics, you know, maybe becomes an important factor here as well. And, you know, importantly, there is also a hesitancy on the part of the U.S. government to allow Argentina to go the way of Venezuela and radicalize and become a kind of, you know, more anti-systemic force. And so what the Bush administration starts doing, and especially sort of more free market oriented figures within the Bush administration, is that they actually start actively pushing for Argentina to default on its debts. And there is a very complex story behind that, too, because some of the people who were doing that work behind the scenes are people that today might be found in the Trumpian camp, people mm -hmm. who were opposed to uh, international uh, global governance, let's say, who were opposed to international financial institutions, 
who clamored for national sovereignty and supposedly were for free markets, who had a kind of anti-IMF orientation. And as long as their banks were not going to be hurt by an Argentine default, they saw no good reason to transfer so-called U.S. taxpayer money through the IMF to the Argentine government. And so this kind of changes the whole calculus uh, of the Argentine debt crisis. Because on the one hand, you've got this budding popular insurrection at home. And on the other hand, you've got a change in the composition of the creditors abroad. And you've got the IMF becoming weakened in its position because it no longer has the support of the U.S. government. And so that changes the calculus entirely mm. for the Argentine government in terms of, you know, what can we do to to deal with this crisis? So I want to come back to this question about um, particularly kind of U.S. Republicans and their role, because um, I wonder if there's a lesson there or not. Um, but specifically with Argentina, um, you know, policymakers in Argentina, I, you even describe it, you know, coming up to kind of D-Day um, for a lot of this for a lot of this debt um, that they displayed the most remarkable case of overcompliance. So even even kind of at the very last moments, they were still trying to not default, even though their creditors were going like, you should probably just default and we're fine with this. Um, and it wasn't because they cared about Italian pensioners either. Um, I think it's just something inbuilt of uh, wanting to comply. And I, maybe that's something which, um, I'm not sure your book answers, but I think it might be impossible to answer because there's a kind of, um, there's something inbuilt perhaps even to, kind of, to a certain extent psychological, but certainly ideological um, in that desire to comply even when all the other signs are saying, well, actually, here's the here's the door. It's already open for you. Um, so, you know, there's a, in reading the book, I, I was kind of looking for this heroic story of, you know, Argentina default and being the one where it actually did default um, and did do the right thing for, for its own future um, and deburdening itself of this debt. But actually what it did wasn't really heroic um, because it was kind of, you know, pushed by, by the creditors. So it didn't really jump. Um, but it also didn't kind of blow up the bomb that it was holding, um, and create this kind of generally chaotic situation, which Mexico, um, which the Mexican case would have been, you know, where Mexico decides to default and kind of blows up the whole international, um, financial arrangement. Um, so I guess, I don't know what the lesson is here. Your conclusion is simply that Argentina is the, the, the exception that proves the rule. Is that right? Yeah, for me, Argentina is the exception that proves the rule, but I do see a certain heroism in there. Um, but I, I don't see it necessarily in the response of the Argentinian government, uh, but more in the outcome of the popular insurrection that led mm. up to the default. Um, so what happens is, you're exactly right, what happens is very interesting. Even if this international environment has changed, even if you know popular movements are pushing harder and harder for a default, even if the government is losing support left and right, um, there is a commitment on the part of the key characters, the key figures inside the government to keep repaying, even though the creditors are saying, come on, guys, get it over with, just default. And I think that there are two reasons. You mentioned ideology. I think that's an important one. Uh, you mentioned psychology, which I think is also an important one, because these are the guys who had been committing to repayment for three years. They don't want to lose face, um, you know, by defaulting at the last instant. So they wanted to go out fighting. Um, but I also think a very important factor was that the financial system inside Argentina itself was exposed to a government default. And some of the things that did hold true uh, is what I mentioned before, which is that if you do default, you're going to face that severe economic shock. And Argentina did face that severe economic shock. I mean, for about half a year, the financial system effectively imploded. The economy went into a very deep depression. Um, 
unemployment skyrocketed, uh, poverty soared to about you know 40% of the population, maybe even higher. Um, this is really dramatic stuff. It was really, really dramatic. Um, so, you know, like a lot of these factors may have been in play in trying to withhold them from defaulting. There's this fear of the unknown. There's this fear of what will happen to the domestic economy, to you, um, if you allow this type of thing to happen. But the truth is, in the end, many Argentinians preferred the painful shock, the short-term shock of a default over the long-term asphyxiation of debt servitude. And um, so the movements have essentially forced the government to do what it refused to do by rising up in force and forcing the president out of power, famously escaped the presidential palace by helicopter. And the first thing that the uh, interim president does in the days after that is to declare a unilateral moratorium on the debt and say that no more Argentinians uh, will be allowed to go hungry um, before we start paying the debt again. Um, and that brings about a fundamental reorganization in the um, orientation of the Argentine government after that. And that's really sort of that both the default and the uprising create the conditions for a new type of politics to emerge in Argentina. And, um, you know, you can, you can say what you want about the type of politics that emerged, um, but it was a fundamental reorientation uh, from what came before, the type of hardline neoliberalism of previous governments. And so there is, I think, a heroic role there for the popular movements. Um, they, they did liberate themselves to a certain extent uh, from debt bondage, uh, from a hardcore neoliberal program, and allowed their country to become part of this wave um, of the so-called pink tide uh, that, that swept over Latin America in the early 2000s. Mm, yeah, and I guess so if, I think it's, if you're going to do yeah, the counterfactual, um, without mm -hmm. those popular uprisings, the... Um, calculations of creditors might have been different as well. You know, they might have imposed themselves and, and tried to say, look, we're going to be repaid here. You're going to honor this debt and you're going to impose austerity. And, you know, I think if, if they had felt that the um, Argentine political class was able to impose that austerity without a popular, without provoking popular revolt, they might have insisted on it. So I think that also acted as a, probably acted as to a certain extent as a break on and, and made the creditors recalculate where they actually stood on matters. I think that's exactly right. And I think also like what I said before, the Venezuela case was important here uh, because there was at least on the part of the Bush administration, a sense that um, Argentina uh, was a country that they could negotiate with, but they could also see it as a potential um, uh, wedge through which Latin America might become much more anti-American in a context of the global war on terror, in a context of the lead up to the uh, war in Iraq. Um, that's not something that the Bush administration uh, was willing to countenance. Uh, so I think that all of this played a role in a very complex constellation of events that made not only the default possible, but then also made it possible for the Kirchner administration in Argentina to negotiate a fairly good deal uh, that allowed them to restructure the debt on relatively good terms, uh, terms that we don't normally see when a country plays the sensible role and simply sits down with its creditors and tries to negotiate an arrangement 
as happens in most cases. Mm, yeah, well, it does make you wonder whether, you know, countries can't start playing hardball earlier on in the process because they are still holding a bomb in their hands that could go off. Um, whereas oftentimes after three years of negotiations and bailouts, um, the debt has been sold off, um, you know, as with the Argentinian case, sold off to Italian pensioners who um, can't really speak for themselves very much. Um, and by that point, um, the 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 kind of coordinates have shifted a little bit, albeit with the Argentinian case, they're actually able to default. Whereas um, with Greece, that isn't that well, that isn't allowed. Um, and we're going to come to that in a second. But just a quick tangent: um, Republicans in the U.S. have been generally reluctant to fund the IMF. Um, and there's a great little bit in the book where you reference the fact that George W. Bush joked uh, when approached by uh, Nestor Kirchner, the former Argentinian president. Or, president at the time, um, you know, here comes the conqueror of the IMF. Um, so it did did make me wonder whether, um, you know, as despicable as the GOP might be, if there isn't a case that a Republican in the White House is better for the rest of the world. I mean, the point's often been made with regard to Trump that, you know, he started fewer foreign wars and actually, you know, for the rest of the world might actually be better than a Democrat. Um, but there might also be something here in terms of a general orientation um, and approach towards multilateral institutions, which you know, as your book paints, plays such an important role in upholding a lot of the whole financial architecture, um, in imposing this, uh, you know, debt bondage on so many different countries, that if you start weakening those multilateral institutions, um, it actually weakens the creditor's power. And so whether for reasons of ideology or simple chaos, um, you know, brought in by a Trump administration, isn't it better maybe to have a Republican in the White House for a lot of the rest of the world? Oh, that's a very nice and provocative question. All right, listener, that's the end of the first part of this interview. I hope you found it as interesting as I did doing it. You can hear the second part over at patreon.com slash We'd love to have you. Please do subscribe. Music.